Welcome to Series 5 of Industry Minds. My name's Owen Woodgate from Tax for Actors. We are over the moon to be sponsoring this series. It really is one of the best yet. So without further ado, enjoy the show. Minds, the podcast that discusses the importance of talking about mental health within the creative arts. My name is Kathy Reed, and today I am joined by our Series 5 sponsor, Owen Woodgate from Tax for Actors. Hello. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm not bad. I'm very excited. Yeah, you hear so many people do this podcast. I'm excited to be uh, interviewed myself, I guess. Fantastic. Well, we're excited to interview you. What are you up to at the moment? What have the last few weeks been like for you? You've been away, you've been away haven't you? Yeah, I, oh God. Well, I think one of the things of running your own business or being self-employed is that you don't you don't factor in holidays, um, and then you go you get two months, two years down the line and think we've not gone away on holiday. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So me and my wife and our kids, we went down to see her parents for three days, and then my parents for three days had a bit of free childcare. Fantastic. It was lovely. Great. Sounds good. Well, um, as you'll know, because you have heard the podcast, we always start with a word association game. So just the first thing that pops into your head, the terror on your face, but just the first thing that pops into your head. Okay. (laughs) Zoom. Clunky. Family. Friends. HMRC. Frustrating. Music. Fun. 2020 disappointing halloween my wife organization could do better pasta parcels surprising <laughs> that was a scarlet one i'm not sure what a pasta parcel is this is like that that pasta that you put the the stuff in is it like a to- like a tortellini I, th- I think maybe something in the middle I think I think maybe I'll ask her. I'll ask her what. It, why okay. did you say um, your wife when you said Halloween? Does she like Halloween? Yeah, Halloween's like her favourite kind of time of the year. We oh. go fairly full out now oh, do you? on Halloween. Yeah. Do you um, do you watch Modern the, Family? No, I don't. The um, the mum in Modern Family is obsessed with Halloween, so every series is an amazing Halloween episode, and they just go crazy for it. It's, I feel like now that we have kids, I think our investment in Halloween is only going to get bigger and better every year. That's so exciting. <laughs> I love it. So let's get started with the interview. Um, a lot of people may not know that you haven't always been an accountant and you've worked very widely across the industry. Can you chat to us about what got you interested in the arts? Where did it all begin? So, I mean, I started as a on like a fairly academic pathway, I guess. I'd, I had no association with the arts whatsoever. Uh, I went to, you know, school. I went to primary school, went to a, a good secondary school. And the plan, I guess, was always to go to university, study. Uh, I had a few places to study economics. And that that was kind of the goal and really had always been the goal. I think I said to my dad when I was six years old, I said, Dad, I want to be a market trader. My dad said, why do you want to be a market trader? I was like, because they look like they earn a lot of money. (laughs) And I think even from the age of six, I was driven by having this volume of wealth. But uh, but something switched. I think it was my sister who trained as an actress, uh, strangely enough, um, that she was doing performing arts at the weekend. And I thought, you look like you're having a lot of fun. So when I was maybe 15, 16, I started going to an amateur group. And that all tied in with kind of the time around A-levels. And it just, I don't know, sparked something in me. It was like sparked a passion. Um, the, I guess a caveat here is my dream was never to be an actor or a, a performing arts person. My dream was always to be in a, in a boy band. I was desperate to be in the Backstreet Boys or NSYNC. No way. That, that was the dream. In fact, I was talking about with a friend, we were, we were listening to 90s throwback hits yesterday in our friend's kitchen over dinner. And I think five came on. I said, oh, I'd 
love to have been in five. They said, oh, surely that was the time when you were the right age. I said, I never got to audition for five, but I did audition for Scooch. Really? Yeah. Not successfully, obviously, but <laughs> yeah, that was, that was it. That was my dream. And, you know, it ended up that I went to performing arts college and trained in musical theatre and that was the start. I just, uh, performing came along right at the time of my A-levels. And I was predicted very high, but I just didn't put the work in. I didn't love those subjects anymore. I was doing a lot of theatre and I essentially flunked my A-levels because I was doing so much performing and that sort of forced my hand, really. I went, I really need to go and see if this is going to work. Yeah. So obviously it came along quite late for you, the arts. Quite a lot of people do the arts from quite young. I personally didn't. I did it from about the age of 14. Um, my school was very academic as well. And you mentioned that you were very interested in economics, but you went on to study musical theatre at Mountview. And since mm-hmm. graduating in 2006, you've worked across the West End and the UK. How did you find your time as an actor? Ups and downs, I think, like anybody. Obviously, going to Mountview at the time... Back in the day, it probably was one of the top colleges. And what comes with that is a kind of an ethos and a, a general feeling. Uh, it, it breeds success. You know, if, if a lot of the year above you are getting agents and going into work, that trickles down. And you have a lot of positivity going into the industry. I think most, I think 99%, only, no, I think 100% of our year had agents before we officially graduated. A lot of people went into jobs quite quickly. I was quite lucky. I went into the West End in my first job and that happened quickly. So I think that breeds a positivity, but also maybe a touch of arrogance, I'd hate to say. My first job in town got cancelled early. The producers pulled it and that, that hit me quite hard because I thought I was all ready and I was all set up and I'd landed my first job and it was in the West End and why couldn't it fail? And, you know, instead of a 12-month contract, it ended up being three months and suddenly I was auditioning again and auditions weren't going quite as well as I expected them to. I wasn't getting to as many finals as I think I, you know, thought I would. I had a few cuts in the first round and I thought, hang on, I went to Mountview, I've got a West End credit, I've got everything's in place. Why is this not going how I thought it should? And I think that is maybe a lack of self-awareness at the time, a bit of arrogance. And, and oh God, you get into that habit of blaming everybody else. I certainly did. I was like, why am I not getting seen for this? Why, why is that person, you know, getting to the finals and I'm getting cut around three? What is it? This isn't, you know, this isn't fair. I think I definitely got into that mindset, even though I was quite a positive person. I think certainly ending that first job early and then things not going quite as well as I hoped was a bit of a wake up call for sure. Yeah, definitely. I can, I can imagine. I think sometimes, so I, I came out of college and I didn't go straight into a job, but there was one that was quite kind of like soon afterwards, but it wasn't a very long contract. And I think that it's maybe quite easy through no fault of anyone's that if you do go straight into a long running Western contract to just feel very safe in it um, Mm -hmm. and not have to come out and addition and addition and addition. And if you do get one of the first jobs that you go for, I think it's only natural to think, oh, well, the rest of it will be as easy as this, because if that was my first job, then after I've got this credit, I will be able to go for something else. And I think that, I think that that's a I think it's just a youth thing as well and something that you you learn as you get older that there's a lot of people in this industry going for not very many jobs. I think the the dream and a certain pathway is sold to you when you're at drama school. Yeah. And I, I have lots of thoughts on drama school, but they have to at least excite that dream within you. And I'm not sure whether the harsh realities are necessarily communicated to students or at least when I was at college they weren't you know certainly for the the Mount Fuse the Arts Ed the Guildford's you are on a on a certain pathway and when you do get a job you think well I am fulfilling the dream you told me this is what would happen to me and it's happening so I think you're right you think yeah 
I have some certainty, this is happening, it's safe. Uh, you know, how can it go wrong? Yeah, absolutely. So getting on to mental health, what have your experiences been with mental health? Um, I sort of took some time over the last couple of days to think about this coming into this, because obviously that's that's what we're going to talk about. I, for many years, certainly uh, all through Mountview, through my acting career, and even as I sort of transitioned out of it, I always thought that my mental health was very healthy. I've never suffered from uh, a depression or an anxiety or something that you know, I, I found difficult to cope with mentally. I think I've always been fairly, my friends would maybe describe me as quite calm, quite measured, quite, you know, reserved and quite together, I guess. And it's really been over the last maybe two or three years that uh, I think that dialogue with myself that, no, you're absolutely fine, has changed. Whether it's come at the same time as as all of us becoming more aware of mental health, I don't know, but certainly I've become more aware of my own mental health. And in some instances, maybe I've struggled more. I found it more difficult in certain circumstances. And I, I tried to kind of maybe rationalize why that's happened. And I think it's just sort of growing as a person. Um, what I mean by that is, you know, I got married two years ago, Abby and I were engaged three years ago, we now have kids, we now have a house and a mortgage, and we have businesses. And I think the stakes are a lot higher. You know, we're now not just two actors going on an international tour and having a lovely time and staying in hotels that are paid for by somebody else. We have three kids who are dependent on us. And my wife and I are dependent on one another. The success of our businesses determines whether we can put food on the table. It determines whether we can pay our mortgage and keep our house. And certainly for the kids, you know, can we send them to an extracurricular activity after school? Can we send them to musical theatre class? (laughs) Do we have enough money to do that? Or are we going to struggle? And I I think over the last few years... uh, I talked about my wife a lot because we're intrinsic in each other's lives, but it was when we got engaged that things really changed, certainly for me. I don't know why that was, just it became serious. I thought, right, you can't continue on this path of a kind of laissez-faire way of living. You're making a commitment to somebody else. And what comes with that is pressure, and worries, anxieties, uh, you know, days where you feel really down. And I guess the education that's going on now in our industry means you're, you're able to identify those feelings a bit more, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I think that just what you mentioned there about like having a mortgage to pay and having your businesses and having your kids and stuff. And when those things when you do end up having dependence and when uh, kind of I think it's just a thing of getting older and realizing that life is still really tricky and it doesn't I always thought by the time I got to 27 that I would be I would be such an adult and I would totally know what was going on and I wouldn't need to ask my mom for anything and I mean I call my mom all the time I'm like mom can you help me with this can you help me with that and it's um life life's difficult and I think that it does it does take its take its toll sometimes and I think that it's it's good that we're recognizing that and it doesn't necessarily mean that we're suffering with a mental health issue but everyone has mental health and it Mm. can be good or bad on any given day and if you are stressed with something that can it can really affect you um and it might be sorted out when that stress is over but it also might not be but I do I do think you're right I think that the the fact that we've all just become more aware of it over the last kind of like couple of years is is probably helping us to take control of it a little bit more and not not let it get the better of us I think. I think now that I've personally become more aware of my mental health I look back over I guess my acting career and my time at Mountview and maybe before that and can identify times when actually your mental health wasn't very good but I don't know there is a something about being a, a male 
and you know how we're brought up and this you know man up carry on and I, that had been kind of ingrained in me and I, I think I never addressed those concerns there were some times at Mountview when my mental health was really poor the stress of third year grad showcase mm-hmm. uh broke me the the pressure of being able to you know you've got two minutes to sing this song you need to hit this note you need to hit that note and if you do you'll get an agent and if you don't hit those notes you won't yeah you know that was really the the pressure that I felt in those two minutes and of my three years I had an absolute breakdown right in front of the whole entire year uh because it I just couldn't I couldn't sing it I was so stressed at that point but I, I never saw myself as having a, a mental health issue or, or being having anxiety. I, I, I wasn't sort of emotionally mature enough at that time to identify my feelings. So you just brush it under the carpet. Yeah, and I, th- I think that I think that no one really was at that at that time. Even certainly when I was in drama school, mental health just wasn't spoken about. And so if you were struggling it was just the industry's tough so you kind of just need to to deal with it but I think that over the past uh, certainly two three years it really has become a thing that you can still be successful in this industry and find things difficult it's just acknowledging acknowledging that and it doesn't make you weak and it doesn't make you unable to do your job I think it's a it's a difficult setup anyway you're training with 30 other people and half of the year group are going to be your direct competition, or at least that's how you perceive it. Yeah. You know, even all through college, my, my two best friends were my best friends, but they were also training to compete with me when mm-hmm. we get into the industry. And that's, that's hard because you feel like you can't admit your vulnerability yeah. to, to, your, to your support network at college. You still have to hold a bit back because you know once we graduate, I'm going to be in the audition room with you. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there is a fear to, ad, to admit when you're struggling. Yeah, definitely. So we'll get back onto mental health a little bit later in kind of relation to, to money. But just back into kind of your journey in the industry. Between 2011 and 2014, you worked as an agent at Keddie Scott Associates. And you also worked a wee bit in casting. What made you stop acting and switch over to this side of the industry? So it happened fairly organically. Uh, I met my wife on a job. Uh, it was the international tour of Avita, And I don't know, there was, a, a, again, a little shift in my brain. I, we got to the end of the job and it, it just seemed more serious a relationship than previous relationships. We had a lot of similar core values. Things were... It just felt right. Uh, we moved in together. And at that point, she's much more successful than I am from an acting point of view. She's very, very talented. And I guess I wanted to to contribute to that relationship just as much. And I didn't feel that I could do that within acting. I don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. It just sort of all happened uh, very naturally. Uh, things things presented themselves. For instance, when Abby and I came off that job, I went into Panto. During that Panto, I was thinking, what could I do when my acting career starts to to sort of taper off? And I thought about becoming an agent. I thought, oh, I can set an agency up myself. That can't be too hard. And I started to look into it, thought, actually, this is really hard. I don't know what I'm doing. And it was bizarre. I'd had an email from my agent, Fiona, at Kelly Scott, and it landed in my inbox. It was to all her clients saying, can we wish the assistant uh, a very warm goodbye as they go on to work in a different sector? And it was like the stars aligned. I was straight on my emails. Fiona, um, can I have a job? Uh, and that's that's literally what happened. Uh, I That one email was so opportune and she'd represented me at that point for about four years and we got on very well I really respected her as an agent and we had really good working relationships so I just said will you will you consider me I know there's more people out there with more experience clamoring for this but I'd I'd love to come in and 
see what I can do. And, and she gave me a trial and that led to a bit more and a bit more and a bit more. And three years later, I was, I guess, her, her assistant. But the way it kind of works in, in Kelly Scott is quite, again, organic and collaboratory. So, yeah, I was there and had a really lovely time. I, I enjoyed being an agent. It was great. That's amazing. That's definitely one of those what's for you won't go by you things. Like it was meant yeah. to be that that email landed in your inbox and you just happened to see it and you went, right, I'm going to go for this. That's that's really lovely. It's really good to hear that those kind of things do happen. I was very fortunate and I, I, I'm very thankful to Fiona for the opportunity she gave me. She was very flexible. I think she knew I still had desires to perform. So if something really good came in into the office and she felt I was right for it, she would call across the desk and say, this has come in. It's this. You could still work at Kelly Scott and do this job. Would you like to be put forward? So I still had a, a, a toe in, yeah. um, which I, I guess was good for me because I felt like I wasn't, you know, inverted commas, giving up. You know, I think mm-hmm. it was a slow transition. It allowed my head to come to terms with the fact that maybe I wasn't as in love with the industry as much as I was when I first graduated. Uh, So I was quite lucky that I had time to come to that realisation. Yeah, definitely. And it's great that they were so supportive in that and didn't cut you off straight and be like, no, you can't act at all. You have to be an agent now. That's really, really great to hear. This leads on very, very nicely to our next question. So obviously you have a very diverse career in terms of what you did as an actor and then as an agent. And I think that the current climate is encouraging a lot of creatives to maybe make some really bold decisions in their lives, such as a possible career change or exploring new ventures alongside the arts. What advice would you give to someone who might be in this position as it can really seem very daunting to make these big decisions for yourself? Uh, Yeah, and I think that need for what they call a side hustle is has never been more applicable right now we have been our industry has been exposed as incredibly uh volatile and vulnerable to what's going on in the world around uh i mean it's worth saying that this is just this time is so difficult we've never had something like this in the like in the last 100 years uh, other than maybe world war 2 was probably the closest thing so finding that side hustle is is something that i guess everyone's now looking to do how can i maintain my presence in the performing arts but still f- support myself financially and i think that's important um, and i'm going to backtrack slightly in that i wish that that conversation and dialogue was had during drama school it's hard for drama schools to sell the idea that maybe some of those students are not going to be landing a two-year contract in the West End straight out of college. So I understand why it's not discussed and sold at drama school, but I honestly feel like having a side hustle or a side project or a side interest should be part of every actor's life. It doesn't have to, you know, make you £20,000 a year. Like, it's not, it's not about that. It's just realising that it is inevitable that even during the good times, you will have a break between jobs. It's almost impossible to go from one job to the next, to the next, to the next, year on year. We've got, you know, a good bank of clients, and there are some clients in there that over the last two or three years have had overlapping contracts, you know, rehearsing for the next job, while they're still contracted. Great. But that's not going to last forever. That's two or three years. And that is, let's say, uh, 1% or 2% of our clients. But even them, when they get to that end of that third contract, they're going to have a break. The, the, you know, the most successful actors in this country. I mean, you had Rosalie Craig on earlier in this series. She's had breaks in her contracts and she's incredibly successful and incredibly talented. Of course. But she's had breaks. Yeah. So how finding a way to manage those breaks, I think, is just as important as your investment in your performing. So my advice for doing that, find something you love, 
find something that you have an interest in. Because if you have an interest in it, you will go and do the work. If you're doing it just for money and the money doesn't come, you will be bored, you'll be disinterested, you will not work hard. You have to have something that interests you, that sparks something in your brain. It's sad. Tax for Actors, it does excite me. Like there are things that I have to still research to this day. You know, we're, all of us are always learning and I'm always learning. I will have a client come to me with a specific concern that I've not experienced in the last 10 years. And I will say, okay, leave it with me. And then I will have to go and do my research and, and learn and advise based on that. But that's because I have a, an interest or a passion in it more so than just be driven by money. So I think find something that interests you, not something that you think you can monetize and make money out of because you will lose interest very quickly. And then I guess the second piece of advice with that is let it grow organically for a bit. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Don't say, right, I'm going to go all in on my side hustle. I'm going to, you know take out a loan for 20 grand and I'm going to buy all this stuff and I'm going to make this happen. It's probably not, it's not my knowledge. I've probably picked it up from a, another podcast somewhere. Make sure you can find a customer before you invest in your business. Tax for actors. I was doing people's tax returns 10 years ago before I was even charging for it. Really? You know, for the first year, it wasn't even called Tax Factors. You know, it was just me helping four or five friends out with their tax returns. The next year it was, oh, those friends have recommended to somebody else. And then suddenly I was doing 15 people's tax returns. And yet I was still only saying, oh, look, I'll come around, buy me a beer, make me dinner, and I'll do your tax return. And it, it did grow organically, but I, I realized that there was a need or there was a, a, a service that I could provide that had customers before I spent any money, before I had a website, before, you know, we did advertising, before we designed a logo, before all of that extra stuff. It's only going to be successful if someone actually wants to buy your product or your service. So if you have a way of determining whether there is customers for your product or service before you invest money, I would say that's the best way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's very, very good advice. And again, a lovely segue into the next question about Tax for Actors. Uh, most people will know you as being the founder of Tax for Actors and helping us all with that dreaded tax return, that horrible feeling when it comes around to January and you haven't done it yet. You've kind of explained it, but what did make you start Tax for Actors? Yeah. I mean, that was it. It was helping a few friends. It was couple of my classmates, a couple of people I'd worked with. I helped a few people and that was it. I'd always done my own. Um, I'd always done my partners or my, my girlfriends at the time. And the next year, those friends that I helped recommended me to somebody else. They were like, oh, look, Owen's really good at it. He can do this. He'll really help you. He'll come around. He'll explain it to you. He'll talk you through it and, and it will be done, you know, no stress. And all you have to do is cook him dinner and buy him uh, a beer or a cider. And that really happened for about two, two or three years. In kind of the third year, that was when I started charging for it. I think I was charging about 50 quid because I, I, I don't know. I, I hadn't gone through enough of my training at that point for me to justify charging more money. Mm -hmm. I've, I, I still felt like I was a friend helping a friend. And really the 50 quid was just to say, look, I am, I am giving you some sort of service. Would you mind slipping me 50 quid? And that was it. Year three, we had uh, uh, more clients and then they were all like, yeah, I'll pay you 50 quid. And then the next year, it just snowballed. Like it just, you know, the number of clients just kept increasing every year and people were recommending me to other people. And this Tax Factors started while I was still an actor. It was running all the way through when I was an agent with Keddie Scott. So, and that's, um, I guess that 
is why I gave that advice about being a side hustle. I never had to financially rely on tax factors. It was in sort of the first three or four years, it was just giving me enough money to pay my own tax bill. Ah, like it was this, okay. I just put it in a savings account. It's like, right, any money I make from tax factors is going to pay my tax bill. And that was that. And it, it, it just crept up every every year to the point that the amount of time that I was spending on it. And it was one of the reasons why I ended up leaving Keddy Scott was I could see that there was a, a need and I had a customer base and, you know, our customers were increasing in number every year. I thought, okay, maybe I should get a website. Maybe I should start my social media pages. Maybe I should just push out a little bit maybe I should design a logo maybe I should make this a a business um that happened and then three and a half years ago four years ago it got to the point where I couldn't do it all by myself so we took on an employee Nikki who's been with us for four years she's our our bookkeeper and once I had kind of a teammate that was when it went nuts because suddenly our capacity increased, we could do more things like this. You know, I wasn't bogged down doing the grunt work all the time. I had somebody to help me. And that was it. Yeah, about three years ago, that's when it really started to kick off. And it was only then that my wife and I became, like we depended on the, on the success of the company. And that really only happened three years. So it did take about seven years to get to the point where we knew every year that we would be able to take some money out and have it as an income. Yeah. But it's amazing to hear that, like you said before, that side hustle that you did enjoy and you did enjoy doing and you did it for free, which a lot of people do their side hustles for free to begin with. And they don't necessarily see that it's kind of like a bit of an imposter syndrome that they don't see the worth in what they're doing. And which is probably why you were like, Oh, 50 quid whereas like if someone said to me 50 quid for a tax return I'd be like are you joking that's insane and I think that it's it's great to see for people listening who are maybe just starting side hustles or are struggling with them at the moment but have such a passion for them that it, it can grow and grow into something that essentially becomes your job and then pays your mortgage and I think that that's so interesting to, I didn't realize it'd been going for so long and how it started it's really interesting to hear the imposter syndrome is a big thing. And, it, uh, you know, I listen to kind of entrepreneurial podcasts and business podcasts and mm-hmm. personal growth podcasts all the time. And it's a big thing with people who start businesses about being an imposter. And I think it can be present as a performer as well. I don't yeah. think it just has to be. I think we can all feel it at some time. But even today, I still have imposter syndrome every day. You know, I still come and go, oh, I can't believe uh, people are trusting me with this. And of course, we have a very good track record and we have really good client retention. We don't really lose clients year to year. You know, we get more clients every year. So obviously we're doing something right, but that still doesn't take away the kind of imposter fear within you. And as as tax practice grows, the the things that you do, like day-to-day tasks, can often take you outside your comfort zone. As I said, you know, if a client comes to me with something I haven't had a huge amount of experience with, it takes you outside your comfort zone. And while you're operating in that space, you're always going to have some imposter syndrome. Yeah. A few months ago, one of our clients landed something really big, a huge change in their career from, it was monumental for them. Um, but it meant that me or tax directors as their accountants were involved in a in a very big process which involved lawyers and contracts and those sorts of things um and taking calls from lawyers in very very high places and it's you know we got to the end of the phone call and i was able to prove my worth but leading up to that phone call the imposter syndrome was almost debilitating because you think they're going to realize that I don't know what I'm talking about. And that may not be true, but that's that little voice in your head saying, oh, come on, you can't really be talking to these people. They're so much more important than you. You know, they know more than you. You're going to be found out. Mm -hmm. And that 
that is a fear always, even though, however unjustified it is, however, you know, you could back it up with 20 years experience. You're, if you're operating outside of your comfort zone, you are going to experience that at some point. Yeah, definitely, definitely. One of the things we're really passionate about at Tax for Actors is education. Education about tax, about self-employment, about finance. I've seen firsthand how a lack of education regarding tax and finance can have a detrimental impact on someone's career, but also on their mental health. The stress of managing money, the stress of where that next paycheck is going to come from really can't be underestimated. And I guess that's one of the driving forces behind Tax Fractors. Yes, we want to help you with your self-assessment. Yes, we want to act as your accountant. But more importantly, we want to be part of your support network as you navigate through the various stages of your career, whether that's the ups or whether that's the downs. We want to be there by your side, offering our support and our advice. So if we can help you out, our contact details can be found in the show notes, or you can drop us an email on owen at taxforactors.com. Enough of me talking. Enjoy the rest of the show. So let's continue to talk money. Money can be a very stressful subject and it can really affect mental health in and out of the arts, no matter what job you're in. But especially in an industry where we're all self-employed, we live month to month, paycheck to paycheck, often chasing invoices a lot. What top tips could you offer our listeners today regarding finances, particularly at such a difficult time as this when the government have let quite a lot of people slip through the cracks? Okay, before I forget, I I had like a couple of things I really wanted to talk about today because it keeps coming up on my Twitter feed and it's invoices and people not getting paid. They're such a bugbear and I'm quite lucky. All our clients pay us on time generally. So thank you to tax practice clients for paying (laughs) on time. But we have another business. We run a couple of other businesses and we have been in the small claims court more times than I can remember chasing money. I think what you have to do, especially let's say you're doing a gig or you're doing some teaching work or you're running a workshop, I think you have to go further than just putting your payment terms at the end of your invoice. Most people will say, okay, there's my invoice. I send it off. It's got my bank details. It's got the amount to be paid. And it says at the bottom, my payment terms are 30 days, which is fairly standard. And then you sit there and you go, right, within 30 days, I'm going to get paid. A lot of gigging companies or princess parties you know these these things that we all invest in between uh, longer contracts may have different payment terms to what you have on your invoice and I think what's difficult is actors performers are often afraid to seek clarification before they do the work it's often we're going to pay you £100 for this workshop. It's going to be on Tuesday. Great, fantastic, because you have a, a need for that money. Mm-hmm. But actually, in my opinion, it's just my opinion, is that they should say, we'd like you to do this workshop on Tuesday for £100. You say, great, yes, I can do it. What are my responsibilities? I will be sending you an invoice with a 30-day payment term. Uh, are you able to adhere to my to my payment terms? So that you have your expectations are managed before you do the job because there's no point in doing that after the job because you've already done it. You have no leverage. It's a very easy question and it's not going to annoy or aggravate the employer or the, the people providing the work. It's just seeking clarification. They may turn around and say, well, actually we don't receive payment from the client for 45 days. It then goes through our back system, our accounting. You're not going to receive your payment for 60 days. And you then can make an informed decision about whether you want to take the work or not. I think we don't do enough of that. We do not treat our work enough as a business. In any other business, you would have that conversation, yet we choose not to out of, I don't know, the, the scarcity of work. We feel we have to just accept it. And then chasing invoices, once the payment term is up, then you send an email and say, this invoice has not been paid within the agreed terms. Make sure that they have agreed the payment term in writing. You say, if you're not adhered to this, um, 
can you please advise when this will be paid? You know, you can give them seven days, you can give them another 14 days, whatever you choose. And if they miss the other, the next payment deadline, then you say, I'm afraid that I will now start charging late interest. And if it's not paid by, and then you set the date, then you take them to the small claims court. Uh, and uh, for the sake of you may alienate yourself, you may not get work with that employer again, but if they don't respect you enough to adhere to their own payment terms, as in they have told you when they're going to pay you and they still broke it, then that's not the type of person you want to work for. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's very, very good advice and something that we just see it all the time. We see people go, I'm about to out this person on Twitter. I've been asking for payment for 90 days or something. And I'm like, well, do you know what? Like, fair enough. Like if someone's not going to pay you, it's really, it's really bad. Yeah. And but I think that's very good advice to get it before so that you know what you're getting yourself into. And then you have all the information you, you need to be able to go forward and, and make sure that you get paid on time. And I guess then my next uh, thing which kind of relates to what we talked about earlier is I think you need to set up a plan uh, about how you're going to make money between jobs. I think you need to be proactive, not reactive. I think certainly for me, you know, I came out of college, bang, I've got a job. Great. And it ended quickly. And then I was left going scrambling around for work you know, and there's always a lag, isn't there? You know, you finish your performing job on the Saturday, you start looking for work on the Monday, you don't find something for three weeks, and then there's a 30-day payment term. Like, you've gone two months without any money just because you, you sort of reacted to your job finishing rather than going, okay, I've got two months before this contract is going to end. I have a really good relationship with all the stage coaches in Southwest London. I'm going to contact them all. I've been doing some gigs for this company, so I'm going to let them know my availability from then. I think you need to have a plan about how you're going to make your money. Some people love work in front of house. I did three weeks and it was the lowest time of my life. I would never do it again. But you get different things. Uh, I was happy to wait tables. I enjoyed being a waiter. I know that that is like some people's idea of hell. But you just, I think you just need to, as you certainly for graduates, certainly for graduates, you need to know that that is going to happen. So why not plan for it? Start building up your connections, start building up your network of people that you can call upon to provide you with work. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that, as you mentioned there with graduates, like tax and finances are kind of glossed over a little bit in drama school. I think that it's certainly better lately. And I know you've been doing quite a lot of chats with drama schools over lockdown. Thank God for Zoom, you know, um, yeah. giving giving um, graduates advice and stuff about uh, how to how to start with being self-employed. It's so... It's not, it's not as easy as just getting a job and your taxes already paid for you in a pay UAE job. And obviously it's really, really important to, to keep on top of your finances if you're self-employed. What would you say is the most important thing if someone's feeling a little bit overwhelmed about becoming self-employed? Like, What would you say is one thing that they can do that will really help them in terms of getting their tax return in? Get an accountant? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course I was going to say that. Um, I think... Uh, again, it's about preparation. Uh, I just go back to the drama school thing. I think for the drama schools that kind of invited me in this year, uh, well done. Like you are taking your students' careers seriously. But I understand why putting aside three hours to have a tax talk, it's not very sexy, is it? You know, come to Mountview, we provide the best training and we bring in all these incredible choreographers and we're going to give you a thorough understanding of self-employed taxes. Like, how it's not very really sexy. It's not really going to sell the college to students. But I think it is so important. Uh, I'm a big supporter of applause for thought and Raf, yes. and, and we've talked about this before. But, and, I, and I think her, her phrase is, education is prevention. Yeah. And, and if education was provided... It, with a level of importance, you know, with uh, with some meat behind it uh, about being self-employed, I don't think we would have, you know, graduates entering the world of performing so fearful and so anxiety-ridden about being self-employed. 
it's not that bad yeah. being self-employed. Uh, filling out a tax return is not that difficult. You know, keeping on top of your money or at least keeping on top of your business is not that difficult. But how can anyone expect to do that if they've not had some level of education in it? Yeah. Um, so what's the one thing? Keep your receipts. It's like my hashtag whenever I do a, like a college talk. It's like, get into your head the phrase, can I have a receipt, please? Yeah. And make it your mantra. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, why I say it, obviously, you know, you can put together your tax return without physical receipts, maybe. But HMRC say that receipts do form a really integral part of your business records. And if you don't have a receipt, are you going to be able to claim that as a business expense? It's, it's a very great area. I think what a lot of people tr- try to do is make the decision whether something's an expense or not at the point of sale. So they will walk up to the counter at Costa, order their coffee, and while they're waiting for their coffee, try and make a decision whether this coffee is allowable as a business expense or it's not allowable as a business expense. And I think, one, that's a really difficult kind of decision to make in such a short space of time. And it means you, you'll get into the habit of not making that decision. Whereas if you kept every receipt you ever received, whether it's a costa, whether it's going to balance at five o'clock in the morning after a night out at Freedom <laughs> or GAY, or it's when you go into Curry's and you buy a new MacBook, if you've got all of your receipts through the year, you have all the information you, you need, or at least you know, you've, yeah. you've provided a good basis. I think that a lot of the concerns I get from new grads and, and new clients is, I haven't kept any receipts this year. I've got a few. And that, that's fine. Of course, our job is to work with that the best we can. But could you reduce your tax bill by keeping your receipts? Yeah, for sure. It just and it doesn't have to be anything fancy. It can be a cardboard box and at the bottom of your bed. Like you yeah. can empty out your wallet every week, just chuck all these receipts in a box. It, it doesn't have to be more complicated. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that leads on very nicely to a, a question about dis- dyscalcia and trouble with numbers. So Scarlett, who can't be here today because she's nannying, she is dyscalcic, as many of our listeners know. And services such as the one that you offer, uh, obviously, really help people who who struggle with money. And it's a massive saving grace, but it can be daunting for people to reach out. What advice would you offer to someone who's maybe worried to reach out to someone like you? I guess the whole ethos behind tax practices is meant to be one of support and plain speak. I would say the majority of our clients understand the decisions we've made kind of on their behalf. If we've done their tax return and we send it to them, it's provided in a way that they can have a look through and go, okay, yep, I understand what you did there and understand what you did there. And yes, that that looks roughly right. I don't think we've ever gone down the route of trying to bamboozle our clients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, we, we're, quite, uh, we're quite welcoming. We try to keep it as simple as possible in the way that we speak, the way that we discuss money, the way that we discuss your expenses and your income. Our checklist that we send out to clients is geared step by step in a very simple way because I think it can be overwhelming because yeah. you look at the whole, don't you? When you sit down to do your tax return, you look at the whole, you go, oh my God, I've got this money coming in and going out and how the hell am I going to put it all together? I think we, and actually the way we work in the office is very much step by step. We break it down into smaller chunks and those smaller chunks become more manageable. And I guess that could be said about lots of things in life. Yeah. Often we get anxious when we look at the whole. I certainly do. I mean, when we finish this interview, uh, I've got a butt ton of work to do today and already I can feel the anxiety of it because I haven't, I haven't broken it down. I just see the whole, you know, I've been on holiday, so I'm back in the office. I've got a lot of work to do, but actually if I then get my notepad next to me and I write out each job one by one, have a checklist and I break it down and say, right, okay, for the first half an hour, this is the job I'm going to concentrate on nothing else. And I, I think we try to 
do that with our clients. We try to break it down into steps, manageable steps. You know, step one, just download your bank statements. Don't do anything else. Just download your bank statements. Send us those. Right, step two, if you've got some receipts, put them them in an envelope, put them in the post. Um, I think when we look at the whole, it can be daunting for sure. Yeah, yeah. But that's why there's people like you to help it not be so so daunting and to just just help us do it which is fantastic we've got a few more questions for you just before we finish um and something that we talk about a lot on the podcast is um being a parent but I think you actually might be the first dad that we've had on the podcast we've spoken to a lot of mums so uh repping it for the dads how have you looked after your own mental health during lockdown while looking after a family okay so I'll be absolutely honest my mental health has been in pieces through lockdown for those that don't know, me and my wife, we adopted our kids, three young, beautiful girls, and they joined us just over a year ago. But the official papers, when they became uh, officially ours, uh, happened, I think it was about four days before lockdown. It was, it was really interesting, really <laughs> interesting time. It, uh, kids have been really affected by this. Uh, you know, our kids are toddlers, or, or at least they're just coming out of toddlership. They're about to, to start school, but they're still very young and they can't rationalize and they can't verbalize their feelings. They are responsive to the world around them. And that, that's hard as a parent to support them how you want to. And you're going through stuff as well. Like, Mama, you have to remember, like, if any parents listening, you know, you're going through something as well. You're going through a, a pandemic, a lockdown that we haven't seen in, you know, for, forever, yeah. any of us in our lifetimes. Our own mental health is difficult, but you're also having to use your soul and life being and f- energy to support your children through it. You know, and that's hard that is draining their, you know, behavior. And I don't mean they're being naughty. I'm just saying that their, mm-hmm. their behavior changes. How they might react to something pre-lockdown may have completely changed during lockdown. Their interaction with their preschool classmates, their interaction with other adults, they're suddenly not social anymore, but they don't understand why they're not social. Mm-hmm. Oh, they can, you know, they can talk to you and say, mummy, daddy, we're not going outside today because of coronavirus. And you think, oh, they understand, but they don't. They're, they're picking up words and language that we use. So their changes in behavior are difficult to manage and understand. And when you as the parents, your energy levels are significantly depleted and your anxiety levels are through the roof because you know, how are we going to pay the mortgage next month? Is, are we going to have a business left at the end of this? That it's very tough, really tough. I, there have certainly two or three months into lockdown, Abby and I had some really dark days, you know, that's, and that's, I think every parent could say, could say that, you know, there can be some days where it's absolutely fine. And you take, have a great day of crafts with the kids or you do some play or you know and they're in good spirits and then some days you can sense that they're overwhelmed and mum and dad are overwhelmed and you've just had the letter from the mortgage company and you're thinking it's all a bit much and yeah we we had we had great days and we had dark days and i i worry for the impact on our children in the net in yeah. as they grow up you know i i, I do worry yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a whole other conversation about how, how this is all going to affect us going forward. But thank you for being really honest with us um, about that. So just before we finish, as if you aren't already super dad and super businessman, you are also the managing director of Magnetic Entertainment Limited, which is a corporate and theatrical entertainment production company. Why did you decide to set this up? One of my in-between jobs was gigging. You know, I I was in like function bands, tribute bands, acts, I went out and sung at bingo halls and holiday parks and weddings and funerals and bar mitzvahs and, you know, <laughs> anywhere that I could earn a bit of money having a sing song. 
And I was working for another company and we parted ways. I, I didn't agree with some of the things that they were doing. And in hindsight, you know, now that I run a similar company, maybe it wasn't so bad. But as I stopped working for them, I thought, well, I've built up a lot of contacts. I've built up the skills. I might try it myself. So that was it. So we set up this entertainment company and we provide tributes and acts and singers and shows to to anyone who have us. Obviously, at the moment, we're not doing anything. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there is real anxiety around that because that was, you know, it turns over a lot of money. Not, we don't make lots of money, but it, mm. it we had a lot of bookings and, and we were doing pretty well. So to go from doing well to suddenly not having any bookings a month, that's, I feel the pain of actors. You know, whilst I'm not acting myself, our yeah. business is in the, the performing arts and entertainment. And we have had March, April, you know, we've had six months almost with no work. Yeah. And that, that six months with no work has to support myself and my wife and our three kids. And the anxiety around that is, is, is really high, you know, how best to manage that. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So we've come to our final question, which we ask everybody. And it is, could you walk into a room today and say, I'm having a bad mental health day? No, I don't think I could. I don't feel I'm there yet. I, I, I sort of elaborate. I, I, I think, certainly with tax factors, I think my confidence, our confidence in what we do uh, and how we support our clients gives them peace of mind. I would be fearful that if I was to, I don't know, communicate struggles with mental health whether the faith from our clients would still be the same does that make sense totally and uh, the thing is, is that there's no right or wrong answer to this question yeah. some some people and we've had actually a lot of people who are directors or choreographers who kind of lead rooms and stuff say that they would feel that they couldn't do that either because they need to be perceived to be to be strong and not that it changes the way that they can do their job at all. Of course you can still do your job, but it's just still that we're still getting over that everyone suffers mental health, no matter where they are in the industry, no matter what part of the perceived ladder that they're on. Yeah. Yeah. We have come to the end of the interview, but we have another game to play. It is called finish the sentence. You ready? Okay. Okay. I, yes. I'll let her be. <laughs> Today I woke up and thought that I shouldn't have stayed up so long watching Netflix last night. <laughs> the best thing that happened during lockdown was Ooh, was uh, spending more time with my children. Mental health to me is very new getting your tax return in early is important because because it's better for your mental health it's better for your finances um yeah yeah 2021 is going to be unexpectedly difficult my favorite netflix watch is Oh, it was Shit's Creek. I've just started. Oh, my God. It's great. Heartbreaking. Um, but that's finished. Uh, we've just started on a new documentary called Unwell, uh, which looks at alternative therapies and alternative medicines. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's very curious. I've watched the first episode of that as well. It's very interesting. Um, if I was stranded on a desert island, my one item would be? my family oh and finally i cheated yeah do you know what lots of people do that <laughs> and finally everyone should be more oh, i'm gonna copy somebody else that said this honest mm. uh i we work we work in a difficult profession uh and i think if we could 
be more honest about our feelings, about how other people affect us and have more honest conversations. I think we would all be in a better place. Yeah, absolutely. And hopefully we're moving towards that eventually. Yeah. We'll be. Yeah. Oh, and thank you so much for joining me. It's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Industry Minds. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can reach us on our email, which is info at industryminds.co.uk. For all counselling inquiries, please email mary at industryminds.co.uk. You can find us on social media. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are at industrymindsuk. There you can keep up to date with all our latest announcements. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week.